0: Welcome to CFO Insights the leading podcast of CFOs in tech. I'm Guy Hutchinson co-founder of Startup CFO and your host. It would be easy to believe that CFO career journeys are predictable however in the light of implicit risks in early stage tech and super high intensity solving problems in these businesses we see startup CFO members taking some quite extraordinary career journeys. Today we're going to speak to Jay Dias managing partner and one of the founders at Leela Capital and you might be surprised how far his financial skill set has taken him into the wider ecosystem. Welcome Jay. Hi Guy, thanks for having me on. That's right, it's been a a long-term goal of mine to get you on the pod. (laughs) Uh, we've, We've had many chats over the last Almost ten years, I would think, and uh, we did that amazing webinar as well back in twenty twenty one. I've always thought you've had such an interesting career journey, uh, and so much variety in the things that you've done. And now, obviously, you have your own firm, and that's exciting—a really intriguing thing to explore. Yeah, super, super happy to share. Yeah, fantastic. So it might be good to sort of kind of roll things back to where we all started. So, like, how did your early finance career begin to to take shape? Yeah. Um, so really early on, actually, it was when I first started
1: working in the city at PwC, a slightly unconventional um, way into it. So I joined PwC when I was 19 as a school leaver. So I left school at 16 and did some bits and bobs in between some uh, part-time accountancy jobs. But I was a file and photocopier within the insolvency team. Um, ended up spending six years at PwC. Wow. um, Got myself... Through onto the grad program, I was kind of through what they now call the school lever program. But back in the the late nineties, it wasn't really a, a formal formal piece. But yeah, I loved my loved my time there. Fantastic.
0: And that, like that that, that program, that, that that's not that common, right? So there, there would have been a huge number of people going on the school lever program onto the grad program. No, there was only three people I know at the time
1: across all of PwC UK doing doing what I was doing because I did the. ACCA, C A T program and I basically funded that myself. I was basically i, I I'm super lucky on, on a couple of occasions. I, I funded myself through night school. Uh one of the, an old boy partner a chap called Mark Homan noticed me either being in the office early, being in the office late, um, and then heard that, you know, all oh, right, this guy's passed his first year of exams, and he was like, oh, that's impressive. And He said, look, you know, I think you need to come in our fee-earning section. Um, Let's figure out where you might fit. So he basically facilitated an interview with somebody from audit, somebody from tax and somebody from the business recovery services is what it was called. And and those, I think it is still called that now. And I mailed all of them, met the auditor guy, super fun. Felt like he was, you know, oh, you go around checking boxes. And I was like, okay, interesting. I mean, to put it into context, I was 20 at, 20 at the time. I was just happy to be in the room, but the tax guy came along and I was like, mm, yellow book, blue book, not sure if that's super interesting. And then a chap called Tony Lomas walked in and said, I'm selling a, a shipyard at the moment. We're working on some boat companies and the car company. If you fancy coming along, let me know. And walked out the room and I went, I want to
0: be you. Brilliant. Um, so it was working hard, being noticed, yeah, and building relationships and leveraging those relationships to figure out what type of finance you wanted to be doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And, you know, having the opportunity to then go off and, you know, become a qualified accountant and go through the normal program, um, getting my undergrad at the time, you know, so catching up on some of the fundamentals that I needed to do within my career but really getting my foundation within the insolvency world. So insolvency, as others may know, is a slight difference to to the rest of accounting Mm -hmm. because it's a little bit more commercial. You do a little bit of legal, a little bit of negotiations, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to internal controls. You really understand the mechanics of of various businesses as as you go into them.
0: Yeah, and that's almost an alternative graduate route, right? If you look at our members, I'd say they're broadly Most of them would have started off in audit, many in management accounting. Uh, Some would have done perhaps tax or even investment banking. And, And now 10, 15 years later, they're FDs and CFOs. But the business recovery piece, it's an unusual path and probably does bring together a bit more of a spotlight on things that can go wrong, things you have to fix.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was all about managing cash, right? You know, we always looked at different businesses and I remember working on a company called Versailles Trade Finance which was pretty famous in its time because it was the fastest company to get to the FTSE 100 um, level and they did that because of fraud and we had to do a massive cash flow reconstruction it was one of the the first cash flow re- reconstruction I had to work on and it was so complex in the ins and outs so you just had to understand the rhythm of the business so it was a different lens you know of, of how how to think about accounting it was more trying to understand the commercial contracts rather than trying to understand the rigor of the accounting policy.
0: Mm, very interesting. And, and at what point in that part of your career do you start to think something big was going to happen in tech? And you fancy being part of that? So, oh, I don't know if that was right, the right moment. Okay. Oh, sorry.
1: <laughs> no, no, that's <no>. okay. <laughs> fine. Like, so,
0: how did it happen? How, how did it happen? happen? Okay, right.
1: So, <laughs> so I, I ended up then spending another, I'd spent six years at PDBC, I then spent another four years doing micro turnaround. Okay. Um, predominantly in Asia, very heavy operational family office, um, kind of business, uh, managed business um, operating companies. Bit of time in Hong Kong, Australia, <clears throat> India all very much around trying to understand the data, trying to understand where the cash is going and helping them turn around. And when you're in turnaround, and this is before the global financial crisis, um, when you're in turnaround, it wasn't the sexiest job in the world, um, Mm -hmm. but it paid really well. But you worked very, very long hours and it was a very kind of deep diving project. And I finished the last project, which was a luxury perfume business based out in LA, came back to London and then went, right, I, I want to go and do my MBA. That was just something that I'd always had wanted to do. Um, and the same chap when I was 19, 20, who took me under his wing, Mark Homan, he uh, basically said, if I'm going to do an MBA in the UK, I've got to go to London business school. So I just had a 10 year plan to, to do that. By going into business school, that was when I got the spark of, wow, there's tech out there. Mm. You know, I, I was at business school between 2008 and 2009. And you know, you had the early starts of really big tech companies coming to the foray, the the significant values, how tech businesses in the UK were were starting to shape up. And I used my MBA to pivot into the venture world. And I didn't really know how to to first go about it. So I first joined an underwear company. Well, uh so um, as you yeah, as you as you, so, you were. So <laughs> <laughs> it was called Make Poverty, it was called uh, Pants the Poverty. It was a spin-out from Make Poverty History um, Nelson Mandela's Oxfam campaign. Um the campaigner basically spun it out and created a small business. It was doing about 5,000 pounds worth of revenue. We grew it to a couple of million, we nice. got a little bit of investment, we launched our first venture debt product, which you know before venture debt was was calling cool it was called um, pants for life not just for christmas it was a it was a great business to be in in your late 20s if you didn't want to make any money um <laughs> what, I, what i really learned was you know poor unit economics the negatives of, of kind of negative working capital models and how to kind of really manage that piece and The business became unstuck when the Icelandic ash cloud, I'm not sure if you remember that. Yeah, Um, yeah, we were fair trade organic underwear, but I ended up having to fly the the underwear around the opposite way around the world just because we couldn't get our stock moving out of India because there
0: was no no Which is a fairly unique problem to have. It's a
1: fairly unique problem, especially when you turn up to the airport with suitcases of underwear and nothing else other than your toiletry bag. A lot of explaining. A lot of explaining. (laughs) so I need to then kind of pick myself up and go, right, what do I do next? And then I got my got my next break. So I got a, got a role as a fp head at Rackspace, which was a cloud computing business. Which
0: was one of the hot businesses at the time. It was that, 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 that late noughties era, like Rackspace was the AWS. Yeah, well, of, it, was, it, was, today,
1: it, was, right? it was pre-AWS, right? right um, yeah. it, was, well, it was just at that time and it was one of the competitors, the one thing that's amazing about Rackspace or or was, and I think it's gone through some changes in more recent years is they had this thing called being a fanatic, right? Or being a racker. And one of my friends, I I got introduced to the role through a classmate of mine from LPS, and the one thing we always used to think of, you've been drinking the Kool-Aid a bit too much here, but then you're in the environment and it was the first time I experienced a true tech environment, the power of culture and it was, it was absorbing, it was great. It was a phenomenal business experience. Went in, they were launching their cloud offering in uh, Amir and APAC, they haven't had not done so before. And we saw that business go from zero to 100 million in three months. Oh, that's been an amazing experience. And it really is. I mean, we went from 800 people across the whole business to 1800. I, I remember that their offices were up in, they still are up in Hazen and Arlington. And it was one building at the time. And by the time I left, which was only 18 months after, we had two and a bit buildings um, across three floors. It was was an amazing journey. The one thing which I I really learned there was acquisition funnels, modeling structures, and the dynamics of scaling an organization, not just from a, a CAC, but also across your staffing ratios, across how do you roll out products. How do you interact with the rest of the teams? I was, I was still a I was still quite green. I mean, I definitely didn't think that at the time, um, but I was still a bit green and I I used to only look at the spreadsheet. And it was the first time I really started looking at people and understanding mm-hmm. the dynamics within the market. Yeah. Um, I was really lucky that the leadership there within the UK or the international leadership, as they were called, kind of took me in as one of their kind of key advisors and and was able to kind of help and kind of discuss around sales strategy, marketing strategy, commercials, and so on. That was really where my where my kind of strength lie. Not that I couldn't do the SGNA stuff, but I just wasn't as sparked personally yeah. especially
0: uh, from it. If you look at the U.S. tech businesses that, that, that were big at that time, they were very sort of metric di- metric driven commercial businesses yeah. that understood that figured out how they needed to hit their numbers. What it meant to trade successfully, but they hadn't forgotten that you needed to bring in talent, and that there was a people dynamic that needed to be nurtured. And if you know, if you talk to somebody who was at um, Amazon at the time, or Apple at the time, or Rackspace at the time, actually, inside those businesses, they they have relatively similar cultures, and I think quite quite a good training ground. Like like a couple of years in those businesses before you're in your first startup. Brilliant. It's it's really good, and it's yeah because. And you're right, it is about talent acquisition and the
1: importance of it, because there was a level of cohesion across Mm. the business, even though you would have conflicts. There was, you know, for a a large organization of 6,000 employees globally, there was a level of cohesion to grow at a rapid, rapid rate. Um, And Lanham and Carl, who are the the CFO and CEO CEO and CFO there, definitely galvanized that that type of atmosphere. And then I decided to leave. And, and, And the reason I decided to leave was I, I always wanted to be in a bit more of a gritty startup. And, and I was going well at Rackspace. I really loved my time there. Went, got invited to go to, to the director conference in the US. And I went there and they turned up to their US head office and it's a shopping mall with 4,500 employees in it. And I just went, wow, this isn't me. However much I love the UK environment, it just wasn't, it didn't fit my culture. I didn't see how I was gonna be able to maneuver myself around that organization to get to that next level. And I think Mm -hmm. maybe that's one of the, and we'll come back to it. And and when I tell you about founding Leader Capital, but one of the core pieces of who I am was I'm not necessarily the most sophisticated political player. And I was very cognizant of that um, as part of my own personal career development. So I decided to think about what's next in my career. Um, and there's a chat called DK, so David Kelly. He was at Rackspace whilst I was there. He was the UKMD. He was then looking at chairman roles within London tech businesses. He had left Rackspace. I was, I was still there for a few more months. And then he just pinged me saying, oh, look, you know, I know that you've always been interested in doing something slightly smaller. What about this travel business? And he introduced me to MMC Ventures. So Rory Sterling, who was there at the time, and Debbie Wasco at Love Homespot and met them both gone on really well and I thought to myself wow my first CFO appointment from a VC and a founder great amazing amazing journey yeah joined them with 500 customers which were you know pretty much Debbie's friends and family with a with a little bit more kind of a few a few customers acquired and you know just to give you a bit bit of context at the time this was the the start of as you will know the the travel tech scene whilst you were at One Fine Stay. Yeah, exactly.
0: Wasn't well, well, like that was a hot space for three, four years, yeah. and uh, people expected a huge amount. Of course, then Airbnb emerged, the winner by country mile. <laughs> yes, uh, but there was a lot of excitement in that space at the time. Before. Yeah,
1: and then Debbie's um, Debbie's vision was she watched the movie The Holiday, you know, and there was a company called HomeExchange.com, and she was like, "Who else is doing this? Is anyone else doing this?" And she realized that everybody else other than HomeExchange.com were doing it as a club so she kind of went on a path to build a community and a club that would help facilitate that grew it to about three million customers over over a three-year period i was super lucky to have the opportunity to broaden my skills whilst i was there because it was such a small business there was debbie myself and ben and, and, and chris watson so ben was debbie's brother and, um, and effectively the, the kind of the head of marketing. And Chris was the head of technology, head of product, and the four of us kind of basically built that business, allowing me to pick up things like sales and customer services and finance and analytics, and be very, very broad
0: about my about my my experience there. Mm. And that's really like your one of your characteristics, right? Is you go into a finance role, but the finance role is actually pretty broad, yeah, and you are. You are doing more than what a typical CFO might be doing,
1: yeah. And I think that's the big difference between any venture business and you know something which is further up the, the private market stack at, at growth, and even maybe in series B where they want you to be a CFO and this is like your skill set mm-hmm. because maybe there is a mission of we want to IPO, we want to exit, but but at that stage, that early stage, it's just we want to grow. And we need to have intelligent people around the table who can grow it together. It's not a division of labor, it is a collaborative collaboration to, to get there with you know, the founder setting setting the overarching strategy, which is it's a very interesting concept when you then have to then go in and say, How do I mobilize this? to the point of try, trying trialing things. That's the one thing I learned at Love Homes was test and fail fast, and it's such a cliche. But if you can't if you can't understand the activities you're doing, you can't test it, then it's just, you know, as every finance person knows, it's throwing the money into a black box and hoping something comes out the other side. Um, And Love Homestock taught me to really unlock that black box with every single pound that we spent to understand what came out the other side, whether that be sales or CS or renewals or engagements with the community or UX on the site.
0: It was a really broad, broad way of learning. And that and that style of being a CFO where it's more perhaps more about how you accelerate what the business understands is, is happening and what the levers are and how to sort of deploy those levers in your growth journey. It, it, it sounds like that that that's your kind of hot hotspot. That's, that's what you aim for. It's like understand those things, test, uh, be rational about how you invest in those things. And then exploit them and allow the business to grow and have a shape that, that's that's very controllable.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's that whole um, it's what the people call the founder mindset within your business. Mm. It's being all of us together. Okay, how do we how do we then prove this next step? Because the rest of finance, especially at an early stage business like like Love Homestock was, was pretty straightforward. It was yeah. it wasn't our financial accounts weren't complex our group structure wasn't complex we did did a couple of acquisitions but there were share exchanges so that was interesting but then it was all about you know the deal wasn't complex the integration was what was complex so yeah that led me to the opportunity you know we we did a couple of internal rounds whilst we were there uh, with, with mmc ventures and we then got an opportunity to potentially exit the business And it was going to be a long tail, long tail exit with an initial investment. And then, you know, let's see how the future will unfold. And that was with Wyndham's. What was really exciting, which is a bit of a pause for my, what I do today was there's a chap called Guillaume Bonneton, who was at GP Ballhout. He's still at GP Bullhound, He now heads up their their French office. Came in to help us find an investor buyer for the Mm -hmm. business. And it was my first experience of an investment banker, a broker and what they did. And I I mean, I I would have known people over my career and my lifetime through friends, what they do, but didn't really take notice of it. And I sat back and went, what you do is (laughs) kind of cool. And him and I worked very closely together to develop the plan that we were going to be, be positioning to the market. And obviously he then worked with Debbie on galvanizing the interest from potential buyers and investors. And then, yeah, we got to the point of getting a, a term
0: sheet and exiting in the early 2015. Wow. Amazing. Um, and, and, and like back then, Wyndham were a big player, right? They were the one that were, was talked about as the prospective acquirer. Yeah. And you guys landed them.
1: Yeah. And I think it was because Accor Hotels had already done, core Hotels were thinking about moving. They hadn't done the one fine stay acquisition yet. Hyatt were in with those Oasis. So actually Rishi at Windham's was a really good advocate within within the general travel tech space. Carlson Wagler weren't really thinking about playing. So yeah, it was a it was a really competitive yeah. piece. And they, they they came on board with LHS because it was a really good strategic fit as well. Because it wasn't just the trick around what LHS achieved was initially it was transactional based. Come and take your membership, you guys, you guys engage. But Chris Watson, I'm pretty sure it was his idea, I can't quite remember the meeting specifically, just went, right, we need to break this down and create, you know, this rather than having this direct relationship between two individuals, we have to create this point system that allows them to, to trade with each other and just go to different locations mm-hmm. without having to be reciprocal. And Wyndham's had a company called RCI, which is a timeshare sales marketing organization, and they saw that as a potential as a timeshare 3.0. Yeah,
0: and um, you can see that's where the strategic fell for them. Yeah, fantastic. So, so that that inventiveness in the point system really opened up the Wyndham deal, and made it possible. Yeah, and definitely. But it sounds like during this period you're building up the founder mindset. You're meeting investment banks like Jimmy yeah. Bullhound, and you're beginning to think about the future.
1: Yeah, I am, and I the the bit that really triggered my future is you no. Know, I'm pretty money-orientated. <laughs> <laughs> like really. um, so so I, I looked at the exit and because you, you're not a founder, you then look at how much, you know, funding has gone in and the participation levels and you look at your check and go, okay, interesting. And I just decided that it was a nice exit number, but I thought to then go and pick another startup with a similar scenario where I wasn't a founder, wasn't something that was appealing to me. And I was questioning my personal ability to stock pick. And I thought to myself, that's what I've got to learn. I've got to understand how to stock pick better. Mm. How do I pick the right businesses? And it's not from an investment perspective. Well, actually you could say it is from an investment perspective. It's It's my time. you get your options, right? Yeah. So, I then said, "Well, what do I want to do? Well, why don't I go and try and buy a business?" So I then set Lever Capital up with its first guys. I raised thirty million as a UK buyout fund from fourteen LPs to basically buy a business and then
0: to operate it. Wow! So let's pause there, Jake, like, I think most CFOs couldn't raise thirty million to buy some businesses, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so like, where's where's this coming from? Where are the the sales skills and the connections with the investment community. How's that? Like, how how's your career taken that shape? So, I think the one
1: thing which I've always held to heart is that some people take this as I like, I want everybody to be my friends, I and mean, I would like to have more friends. I think everyone would. But the one thing which I am is 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 I always unfriendly, and I like to create connectivity with people. And where I find that other people can connect together. I tried to to facilitate. And then that comes back in reciprocity. You know, when you, when you build relationships and you allow people to network around you without a commercial gain, then actually there's going to be some added value to come back to you. So I came across a model called the search fund. That was the model that I raised my, my, my buyout fund under. It just happened that there was a chap called Simon Webster was the first person to raise a search fund in the UK. He went to LBS, he spoke. It then also happens that a classmate of mine, a chap called Raj Sood, ended up partnering with Simon in acquiring a business a few years before. Raj and I, who's always been an advocate, he's been a multiple investor across my businesses over the last 13, 14 years, suggested you should look at this model. And I went, okay, great. And started researching it, talked to a few people predominantly over in the US who had done this model and thought this could be a path for me to go under. I then got my phone out and went through everybody who I knew and went, right, how do you fundraise? When you fundraise as a founder, and whether you're trying to raise a fund or you're trying to raise money for your business and you're bootstrapping it, you, fundraising is a two by two. It's people who know you, people who don't, people who invest in the asset class that you're positioning and the people who don't. And there's no point trying to sell to people who don't invest in the asset class you don't know, but there is a point in trying to get to know more people in the asset class that you do. Mm, that's very rational. Yeah. Simple two by two. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I did an MBA, right? <laughs> I did an MBA and I'm a finance guy. So I then ended up creating a list of must have been about 150 potential investors globally. Mm-hmm. And when I say globally, I mean in Europe and over in the US. Yeah. And I started doing outreaching. And you know, you obviously always ask for people, or oh, could you do any can you do me an intro? Some people don't do an intro. Intros in Europe are more maybe more in the UK are more warm and accredited. Mm. In the U S you can just reach out to people. The one thing which is very similar in ventures as your community will know is every VC wants to talk to everybody. They just need to distill their time to have the right conversations. So I found that with investors. So I then spent what I thought would take me two months, which took me six and a half to raise a fund in summer on my balcony going wow what am i doing <laughs> how am i going to raise this reaching out i wrote my ppm so my investment memorandum and i then got rod sued was one of my first cornerstone investors saying yeah oh, he'll take an allocation and then a german family office who happened to be in london at the time we went for lunch told them my story up until that point and said love it let's go for it and then that happened in the first two weeks of those three months and then very very little else in terms of positive responses, other than, great, let me know how you get on with the rest of the fundraise, which I think anyone who's been in a fundraising journey will understand mm. is pretty common, right? So I got to the point where I had a group of about 20 people that I thought might take an allocation. So I said, great, most of which were in the US, maybe 12, 12 were in the US. I said, right, okay, I'm going to go to the US. And I took 34 flights over nine and a half days. Wow. Is that right? Maybe 12, no, yeah, nine and a half days. It's a lot of flights either way. <laughs> so I started with meeting Peter Schover from Milk Street Ventures, and I flew into Boston the night before, and I met him first thing in the morning. And I wanted to meet him because I thought, this guy's a banker. This is gonna happen. He's in the bank, And had a great chat with Peter, had a nice lunch with him, and he said, let me know how the rest of the roadshow goes. And I was like, I really wanted some sort of verbal commitment mm. but i didn't know how to close looking back on it now that was that was the
0: that was the problem i didn't know how to close that seems to me that when you describe your journey with leela that actually a lot of it's relationship driven and you haven't really been a salesman before right and suddenly you're in you've got these great relationships you're meeting relevant people you've got something interesting for them but you've got to wake up the sales dude.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and kind of going, wake up the other everyone else's commitment. You know, yeah. I'm passionate, I'm knowledgeable, I'm friendly. How do I get them to buy into that? So I didn't close him, went on this nine-day tour. Finally, I was over in I was in San Fran. So I went to meet a, a, a small family office in San Mateo. And then I was flying back on the red eye back to Boston. And it was my last flight. And the plan was then. To go to Europe the following week to do the roadshow there, less flights. It was only going to be Munich, Barcelona, and Aberdeen, and that was it. But I'd been to Chicago, New York, Florida, LA, San Fran, back to LA, up to Seattle. I mean, it was, it was all, it was full-on. And I got to San Fran Airport and nobody had committed. No verbals. And I spoke to a chap called Scott Ason who is a old boy, Harvard piano club player who, quit banking in the eighties to go and play, play the piano again, back at Harvard, and then went back and then made his fortune, now owns a whole bunch of airports across the U.S. Nice. Good guy. Yeah. Proper old boy. Yeah. We were chatting for a couple of hours. So I'm in the airport waiting for my flight to go, home, telling my story, taking me through my pitch. This is our first conversation. And he's like, Jay, come to New York, come to New York. I said, look, I can't. I mean, in my head, I'm going, this is done. This hasn't worked. I need to go home I spent enough money on doing this. I need to go back and figure out what to do next. And Scott was really pleading with me, can you come? I said, look, I really can't. I've got to be in Munich the next day. I've got my notes booked. And he went, OK, Jay, do you know what? I never do this without mean people, but I'm in. And I was shocked. And he was like I was like, amazing, fantastic, this is brilliant. And I said, right, I'll, I'll email you when I go back to London. Got off the call, and I, in San, San Francisco airport, just pretty much yelled yes, with the people around me. Some people giving me very, very odd looks, but the people opposite me gave me a little mini clap <laughs> because they
0: could hear that I was pitching. That's, that, that's when you know it's going well. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Bystanders <laughs> applaud.
1: So as I was boarding the plane, I emailed everybody over the last nine days I've met, going, Scott Easton's end, starting to round stylish to shape heart, would love to hear what you hear what your thoughts are, what you're thinking, next mm. steps. And when people say things snowball, that's when it snowballed. You need that trigger, you need that anchor to be able to leverage and say, here we go next. By the time I landed in Boston over the red eye, I had um, half of the commitments. I slept for a couple of hours, met Peter Schober again for lunch closed them during the lunch by the time i got on the plane go back to london i was oversubscribed and then i then had to when i did my european tour decided who i really wanted it
0: amazing and
1: yeah yeah, it was the best fun right i mean like it's a great fundraising story
0: right but also also like a great personal development story uh, because it sounds to me like in this journey it's not just a journey about meeting investors it's about you unlocking how to bring that bit of Jutspur, spur, the bit the, the bit that allows you to close the deal mm. rather than just have great meetings. Yeah. And so there's there's a little bit of like a homegrown personal development thing happening. Yeah, it's I think it's that, you know, when
1: people people kind of try to describe me, they say I'm a finance boy who can sell. And I think I I always kind of frowned upon that a little bit. Because mm. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Because I'm not a seller. And then that was the moment where my sales skills really came up to the foray of selling the best thing that I know how to sell, which is myself,
0: right? And your insight and your expertise and your understanding about investments and potentialists. Yeah. Yeah. So did the fundraise, and um,
1: any any founders who might be listening to this will know the story of you, you haven't really done a lot up until that point other than your thesis, and then you got the money in the bank, and then you sit at your desk and go, right, so what do I do now? So I popped out to the shop and bought a lamp and then came back. A lamp. <laughs> a lamp just for, the, for the desk. I thought I needed a, okay. need, need a, need a lamp for the desk. And I then embarked on looking at 200 UK sub, you know, half a million to one million EBITDA businesses to try and acquire. We ended up acquiring two, really across the board of, of sectors. With me, because of my tech background, I always ended up looking at businesses that had a bit of a, tent, a venture play. And as part of that, it was a, there was a question in my mind going, why am I buying a small, you know, SME for me to go and operate? What should I really do? Is this the right mm. the right path for me? I had that dilemma with my board and my LPs because I was bringing deals to them, some that fit perfectly and some that didn't. And on reflection i can look back now and i always would always question why don't they love this business and i and i realize now that they didn't love that they may have loved the business but the risk that they were taking was on me because i was an emerging manager and that's kind of allowed me to frame what we do today and how i then move my career on mm. because what what we, we ended up doing was we ended up doing a couple of transactions which were had a level of distress to them, had a level of venture to them, which you know, surprisingly given my background, I turned them around and then went, I'm just not the right CEO for this business longer term. And then realized I'm not the right CEO for any business. Not, not an operating business mm. in that way.
0: Yeah.
1: So actually what am I good at doing? Well, I'm a finance boy who can sell.
0: So let me go and do that. And so that, that's led to your, I guess, pivot Yeah. With Leela. And and so what's the current form of the business? So at the moment, we are advisors that invest. We raise capital
1: between three and 20 million, C plus to early series B. And what we then do is we take our normal corporate finance fees. However, we roll at least a third of our fees over as equity. So we can start taking some, some investment holdings. But I've now got some LPs to support us in rolling all of our fees over as equity. So my goal is to move us from being advisors who invest to investors who specialize in advising. So if you talk about other VCs, you might have somebody who specializes in technology or they love to get into the strategy or they love mm-hmm. to get into the unit economics or the marketing or something yeah. else. I just want to preserve your cap table. And that's you know on, on behalf of the founders, not necessarily just on behalf of the investors. That's what we love doing. How do we position? How do we tell the right story for your business? And what we get is two types of clients. We get founders who recognize what I recognize when I I did my own first website and then realize about two weeks later, shouldn't have done my own website. I'm gonna go and pay (laughs) someone else to do it. The same way that they've done their early stage fundraising and they're time poor and they recognize that they need somebody to help them manage that process it's not for everyone but certainly that there are some out there and the other story uh, which is our core customer base is there's a complex story you've pivoted you've had a channel that didn't work you were massively impacted from um, covid and you've cut out some markets yeah. you've
0: got a complex cap table those storytelling is where we really come in at that value although that that's a big market so you're looking at founders that understand that sometimes you need a specialist yeah and that might include funding rounds. yes and by the way the majority of early stage businesses have probably had a pivot got some complexity yeah. might have been hit by something recently so i mean like you're playing in a huge space
1: yeah definitely and what i'm really trying to do is and this is just from my own experiences i found it really difficult it's a nice storytelling process now but i found it very difficult to figure out who to talk to mm-hmm. and i find that within venture There are a lot of brokers out there who are trying to monetize relationships. I I don't believe in monetizing relationships. I believe that every VC wants to talk to everyone if they've got the time to do so. So how do we just facilitate that conversation better? So what we do is we monetize our advisory and then we run a process to drive deal certainty. And it's not a case of this is who we know. Yes, we know the VCs in the market, but actually very happy to do those intros if you want to run your own process it's about do you see us adding value to you as a partner
0: so yeah so that's how we've pivoted to from where we were to to where we are today amazing amazing and and bringing this back to your career journey so your your career journey has been incredibly broad you've worked with founders you've become a founder you're a finance guy but you are focused on recovery and insolvency so it's a really unusual journey you skipped university like 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 it's it's quite unusual. You are genuinely a walking edge case. Okay, if you don't mind Thank me saying Thank very much. <laughs> I mean, I did mean it a nice way. Uh, but if you had to play that back to some of our members, right? So many of our members are quite seasoned CFOs. We have many members who are FDs or heads of finance. They're the CFOs of the future. So they're ascending into that role. And if they're looking at your career and thinking about what they might want to do in their future, how, how would you distill what your learnings have been about the things that you've done? So I think it's always great for you to have a North
1: Star in your career and and my personal friends will laugh at me to say that I always did have that North Star even when I was 19 I had a 10-year plan at pretty much any moment in time Um, but with the knowledge that you know that journey is not a straight line and I am a true believer that you always take a, a role because of the next role you want and you need to tell your career as a story. You need mm-hmm. to show and demonstrate. Yes, okay, I have worked with PE funds. Or I've worked with venture firms. Or I have done an IPO. Or I've done multiple rounds of Series A. So I would be saying to, to to the community, going, "Are you are you experiencing the story that you want to to get your next next role?" And it's not just evolution. Sometimes you've got to craft your way through it and build those curves and get create that opportunity yourself, which is. Not easier to say
0: than do yeah 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 fascinating fascinating mm. uh, but never give up <laughs> that's never give up and and do you feel you've been quite creative on your career journey you you mentioned relationships a lot and meeting people that you connect with and that becoming an important cornerstone to a transition or a deal that you were doing and do you think that those relationships your your ability to build relationships with people that can help you out do you think that's really unlocked all those doors
1: Yes, I, th- I I do think that. I mean, I think LBS was pivotal in my career. PwC was pivotal in my career. I will have those two brands, which which enabled me to have wider conversations that that typically wouldn't necessarily have been open to me before. But I do think building upon relationships give you give you a platform to explore more. Yeah, and I I do want to say I'm I'm a horrible networker. Right? Do you really think? I really am a horrible networker. I am. I, I will go to... down. As a yeah, no, no, no. I I, um, I don't go to events and work the room at all. If I go to a dinner, like a formal dinner, I will meet everybody on that table and they will all know me really well, mm. but I will not know a single other
0: person in the room. But that's partly because networking events are poor for networking, right? Well <laughs> I mean it's I think deep down we all know that. <laughs> yeah, Except for the startup CFO ones with them, maybe <laughs> like, obviously, yeah. Very <laughs> finely curated <laughs> crowd, let me tell you. <laughs>
1: Um, um, but yeah no but once you get that relationship it's about how you nurture that and that's what i truly
0: believe in fantastic jay it's been a real pleasure to talk with you about your career and the extraordinary things you've done been it's been great to get time with you and 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 you know you always have so many interesting things going on i have a feeling that we'll be having you back on the podcast at some point
1: soon i would love to thank you
0: so much for having me on it's great to great to share some of my background it's been super fun Thank you for listening to CFO Insights brought to you by the Startup CFO Membership Group. If you're looking to develop your finance career, please check out our L&D program at startupcfo.tech. And if you haven't subscribed to this podcast already, you know what to do.